I was asked to speak tonight about the need for Catholic intellectuals today, which begs of some, so several questions that are very simple, but perhaps because they're simple, they're challenging. What do we mean when we talk about being an intellectual? Why is that a useful or important facet of culture? Is being a Catholic compatible with being an intellectual? What does a Catholic intellectual have to offer culture, more generally, and the church in, in a specific way? So I'm going to spend the first part of the talk simply exploring those very fundamental questions. And then the second part of the talk, I'm going to really try to focus in on what I take to be three, you might say, extremely important challenging zones or areas where I think Catholic intellectual life can make a massive impact on our contemporary culture if we accept the challenge and if we move forward with a kind of courage, insight, and serenity. So let me begin by just trying to uh, accept the, the definition uh, of what it is to be an intellectual as a, as a, a question or a problem. Uh, when you read ancient philosophers, they don't necessarily talk about the task of the philosophers to be an intellectual. It's a kind of contemporary parlance word. But I think what we mean by it, most especially, is a person who tries to achieve an integrated and insightful vision of reality that integrates facets of learning from various disciplines and allows us to achieve a kind of orientation on what the purpose of human existence is and how we ought to live in light of what's most ultimate that integrates all the lesser realities or the subordinate realities into that vision. That was a long-winded definition. Now let me illustrate that a little bit. I think an intellectual is a person who, first and foremost, seeks a metaphysical perspective on life. They try to talk about what are the, as it were, nuts and bolts of reality, what is most ultimately real, and therein religious traditions and anti-religious traditions are fundamental. People try to explain the world, for example, through materialistic study of nature or through religious interpretations of reality or both and so forth. But also, a kind of, the intellectual seeks a kind of prudence and orientation. How are we to live? What is it to be wise? What are purposes for human beings? What is our existence about? And then thinks about it in terms of how it can be expressed in culture. So for example, in the realm of the arts, there are people who in their intellectual life specialize more in or illustrate their ideas in reference not just to philosophy or you might say practical wisdom, but also the arts, to think about how the great artists give us a vision, attempt a kind of synthetic vision of the whole of reality in artistic form. Or they think about other instruments of culture like law and politics and how laws can be crafted to aim towards a deeper vision of reality or maybe benighted because these laws um, obscure fundamental truths about reality or uh, inform us by a kind of habitual social reflex that turns us towards the truth or away from the truth. Right? Law is a place of intellectual discussion and combat and philosophical argument. And I think also an intellectual tends to try to think about how to think about how the truth Claims that are most broad apply to our specific social problems, particular in, uh, uh, contemporary questions or crises. I mean, an example of this is um, who, a, a great Catholic intellectual in Germany, Robert Spemann, who just died, I think I was told, 
uh, actually wrote quite critically about the building of nuclear energy power plants in Germany and tried to argue for that. I mean, he's a very well-known public philosopher who writes usually about the human condition, but he weighed in on that social condition because he thought it could affect the whole of the human race to build lots of nuclear power plants that we didn't necessarily have predictable outcomes about. So he's weighing in on a social problem. It's different when he does it than when the Minister of Energy does it. And they both have a role, but it's interesting how that kind of public intellectual voice can be valuable. And lastly, of course, intellectuals weigh in on the significance of the natural sciences and, and the study of history, and how we're to think about ourselves, and you might say, both in scientific or cosmic history, and also in our more, as it were, human regional history or cultural topography. Um, so that's a sort of a general spreadsheet, as it were, or maybe a postcard version of thinking about core elements of the acquisition of an intellectual worldview and what it means for people to be intellectuals in culture. Um, in the midst of all that, the human being who tries to find a unity, a unity of perspective that's you know philosophical, metaphysical, about the big questions of what we're about, why we're here, what we are, the, the sort of prudential and political questions, the artistic vision, the historical and literary uh, and uh, scientific knowledge, to integrate that into a kind of unified um, form of a vision that respects all the, the particular disciplines. And that's extraordinarily challenging. It's an intellectual endeavor that is always in some way done in community, in conversation with others. And I may come back to this later, but it's one of the great immense, actually, advantages of the Catholic tradition that you're speaking with a tremendous um, uh, range of thinkers across the ages and also not just um, diachronically but synchronically with people in your own era across a span of cultures to try to cross-fertilize in thinking with other Christians about the whole truth. So the intellectual project is collaborative. What does it offer other people who are not invested immediately in this kind of endeavor? professionally or, as it were, maybe avocationally, well, it offers them judgment about reality. The perfection of the intellect is achieved through judgment. It's not actually incessantly reasoning that perfects us. It's not actually debate, dialectic, and argument, although those are necessary. The intellect is perfected when it judges the truth about a matter. I become myself, I become autonomous as a human being, and I achieve a kind of dignity and nobility about a given reality when I make a judgment that's true about that. And I, I'm, I'm realistic. I'm in the face of reality, looking at it and judging accordingly what it really, how things really are. And intellectuals help people, as it were, make those judgments. I mean, so in that sense, it's not a hierarchical conception that uh, tends to try to... Um, reinforce a vision of domination, dependency, or the infantilization of people who are not pursuing intellectual work. It's that we all learn from other people. There are always specializations, and some people in particular help give us, help us make up our mind intuitively or argumentatively about uh, real issues and about the whole. The intellectual offers the world a unity of vision, uh, and that's something often lacking in a world of hyper-specialization. We all have education that has in some ways specialized our knowledge. And so in some ways that can lead to fragmentation. And the fact that we, especially, the, for example, in the contemporary university, we don't have a shared um, parlance, even language, about what the whole of reality is about. And one of the tasks of the philosophical 
intellectual is to try to give, provide a common language about all of reality to people. And of course, the intellectual can pursue, can, he can give a person perspective on the meaning of life, so-called in the Greek terminology, Sophia, wisdom, an orientation towards the horizon of the absolute. Now, the question, can one be a Catholic intellectual, is proposed in a slightly coy way or maybe a somewhat shy way. I think we could actually answer it immediately in a more aggressive response and say, we really should be asking the question, can you be an intellectual without being a Catholic? (laughs) And that sounds extraordinarily inappropriately triumphalistic. And uh, and, and of course it is in a way. But in a way it isn't. And let me explain why. Uh, uh, The Canadian uh, philosopher, the 20th century Jesuit, Bernhard Lonergan talked about how the human intellect is animated incessantly by a dynamic desire for the universal. The human being is always trying to understand things, explain things in more universalistic terms. We have a drive to absolute explanation inscribed in us. And what is the ultimate horizon of the universal? If you, I mean, if you think about the universality of reality, you're trying to understand all of reality in its most universal terms in the most absolute way against the backdrop of the most absolute horizon. Well, maybe uh, some of the contemporary new atheist materialists are right, and it's just matter. In the end, we're all just basically accidental globs of um, cosmic space dust that got wrapped together through the processes of um, you know, contemporary particle physics that denoted by the study of particle physics, and then through a winding evolutionary process animated primarily by chance in a certain sense. Okay. But if that's not true, and it isn't, there are good philosophical grounds for arguing that God exists. I'm not going to elaborate on that here. If God exists, then God is the ultimate horizon of explanation of reality and is the most universal backdrop to the explanation of all things. And so the dynamism to try to explain reality finds its deepest rest and repose only ultimately in considering God and all things in light of God. It's a very traditional claim. You find versions of it in Plato and Aristotle, in Aquinas and Bonaventure. And uh, it's, it's at the core of the Western tradition that the ultimate science, scientia in Latin, explanatory knowledge of reality comes in light of its most ultimate horizon of um, causality, which is the creator causing all things to be. There's even a deeper reason in a certain way to think that God and therefore the Catholic religion could pose a certain uh, privileged resource, could provide a privileged resource for intellectual explanation. And that's that if divine revelation is real and we truly know God through the mystery of Christ as Holy Trinity, then we acquire through divine revelation intimate knowledge of who and what God is in his very self. And by that sacred light of faith are led into the deepest ground and explanation of reality that casts a a kind of perspective on everything else. So in some way, because of the philosophical quest for knowledge of God that's incessant in the Catholic tradition, and the, the, the theological quest for knowledge of God as Trinity in light of divine revelation, the Catholic intellectual is posed to try to understand things by faith and by reason in their most ultimate light. And in that sense, he or she enjoys a great advantage for giving ultimate perspective and seeing the unity in all things as a unity of knowledge, a unity of being, and a unity of knowledge that comes ultimately from God as the sovereign cause and final end of all things. So if you go back to some of the things I said that the Catholic intellectual in general tries to deliver to culture, 
you can recapitulate that list in a more Catholic way. So, for example, the Catholic intellectual provides ultimate metaphysical perspective on the what we are and why we're here and what it's all about in light of the uncreated personal communion of the Holy Trinity and the knowledge we can have of God. Like, our personhood matters because ultimately we derive from the personal communion of the Holy Trinity and we're made in view of communing with God. And there's a certain register which that's even discernible, not in terms of Trinity, but in terms of God, the Creator, at a philosophical level, that we can see evidences that are clear that we are, in a way, um, from God and for God, inscribed in our very being uh, on a philosophical register. Okay, but also then we have a kind of Christian intellectual prudence about what culture is for, and therefore what are the highest instances of art, what are the best and highest instances of law, Uh, how ought we to govern ourselves politically, How should literature depict the drama of human existence or theater or opera in light of the most ultimate realities? Uh, And that ultimately is a kind of interesting human and religious um, drama of the unfolding of human existence in the light of God, in the light of our invitation to life in the Trinity. So there's a reason that you have such great Catholic philosophers, Catholic theologians, but also Catholic artists and historians and legislatures, legal theorists, and um, um, generally speaking, animators of culture. You might say, in this sense, Catholics are the ultimate believers in culture, and they're the ultimate believers in the unity of learning, and they're the ultimate believers in the meaning of history, because they have that kind of strengthening um, perspective that comes from faith and from Catholic reason, Catholic philosophical tradition. So I've offered a a kind of a, that's the first part of the talk. What I'm trying to do is just offer a a brief, slightly aggressive, if not triumphalistic, argument for why the Catholic intellectual life is actually vital to culture and is at the heart of, um, you might say, the Catholics can often be the intellectual protagonists of their own culture. And even, you know, by the way, when you're in a, in a, when you feel like you're in a minority position, I mean, it's interesting to think about, just from a biblical metaphor here, the, uh, the perspective on Daniel in the Babylonian exile, where you have this um, young Jewish man who's particularly wise, uh, under, the exilic, under the power of the, of the exilic domination of the Babylonians, but he's taken from the king into his court, uh, in order to give perspective and wisdom, and the king starts to listen to him, and he actually changes history, and then eventually, you know, this is connected with the restoration of the, of the Jews in Jerusalem and the restoration of the law and so forth. Anyway, the point is, it's actually strikingly, it's strikingly surprising what a difference a, a given intellectual contribution can make from one person. And there are many people in the 20th century or in the 19th century and 20th century who've done this. I mean, think about uh, John Henry Newman. That was a person who went against the grain and actually is still having a tremendous effect in the intellectual life of the modern world. Um, Think about Edith Stein. You know, she died in a gas chamber, but she changed history by her witness intellectually. Um, Carol Wojtyla under communism, uh, you know, think about Elizabeth Anscombe's extremely um, brilliant and clear defense of the dignity of human life and the reasons abortion should be illegal in the context of Britain in the 1970s. 
when it was a certainly an unpopular view, and the in intellectual vitality that her example has set that's, I don't know if you're aware, but bearing immense fruit right now in the United States in the pro-life movement uh, has had a huge impact on young intellectuals in the Ivy League's uh, world today. Think about um, Alistair McIntyre's sort of intellectual conversion to Thomism and his philosophical vision, or Joseph Ratzinger's uh, reaction to uh, German theology in the 1960s and how he decided to articulate a different vision of theology that bore immense um, influence. But then you can think also just, I mean, to speak a little more generally, also about other things like Catholic artists and the, the sort of grandeur of someone like Mozart, who was a Catholic artist after all, and Shakespeare. Uh, but I was recently in Barcelona and I, I really got to know a little bit uh, the, the architecture of Gaudi and see the great vision of his cathedral and learned that Gaudi was actually quite a convicted spiritual mystic and intellectual pioneer of a kind of organic vision of the relationship of nature and grace. So, you know, Catholics can make an immense difference even in places that are very secular and even in times when their, their vision of the world is deeply contested. Okay, now I want to shift and talk about three domains where we are um, certainly challenged, uh, but not just the Catholic Church or the Catholic Theological or Philosophical Guild, but the culture at large, and where I think the Catholic tradition offers us tr tremendous resources to respond to the sort of difficulties and challenges of our time. So let me, let me pivot then to uh, three kind of domains where I think you have opportunities. You might say crisis is, is the invitation to opportunity, just as in Greek the word krinein means both crisis and judgment. In the midst of a crisis, you try to make discernments. And so we have opportunities in the midst of intellectual crisis. So I want to just talk about three of them. The first is the challenge of relativism and the very great difficulty to uh, cultivate a culture of the truth, a culture of truth-seeking. Um, I mean, I think it's one of the most fundamental, I've done in the Thomistic Institute in the United States in the past a lot of work of public speaking in contemporary secular universities. And you see there a paradox. On the one hand, the most dangerous thing is to make any absolute judgments, especially in the moral domain, for the students, for the students. They perceive this as a, a tremendous um, kind of... A, challenge or you might say intimidating factor. But on the other hand, there's also a great uh, nostalgia or desire for perspective and absolute truth judgments. And there's a deep instability in that. I mean, I think to speak in, a, in an overly simplified fashion, but to give a, a kind of historical reference, I think we're still living through the travails of the synthesis elaborated by Immanuel Kant in the Critique of Pure Reason which creates a divide between the empirical world that can be known by the modern sciences and which we study through facts and observa through observations, empirical measurements, and try to establish empirical facts about. That's the sort of scientific domain that's accessible, that's public, that's objective. And then the internal world of the construction of values, the construction of accounts of reality where we, you might say, each create our own subjective worldview or inherit a worldview from our culture that need not necessarily be um, based in that objective world of facts and might not be derivable from it. So that there's always a deep uh, ambiguity between our commitment to the natural sciences, modern medicine, and the technology that's derived from the scientific understanding of reality, and then our subjective worldviews, wherein we just, in a, in a certain way, throw our hands up 
uh, politically and say, well, anyone can hold anything they wish to be true as long as they are able to tolerate and respect the views of others. And so in a simplified version of Kant, you end up with something like the, what we call in America typically Rawlsian um, procedural liberalism, named after the philosophy of John Rawls, which is attempting to, which attempts to provide a, a liberal public space where everyone is free to do what they wish so long as uh, they don't uh, encroach upon the, the personal liberty of the other. But it's not just civic liberty, it's the liberty to create your own understanding of reality. And we, of course, face all kinds of confrontations about that, about like, well, am I free to decide for myself whether it's an unborn human life? Am I free for myself to, des to, desire, to decide whether I'm going to have a male or female body? Are these public realities or are they basically derived from a, a personal subjectivity? How far does that freedom of subjectivity go? And it's a, it's a pretty profound internal crisis outside of the church in the secular world at large where there's um, a tremendous difficulty to find a common parlance, establish a common set of references about what we consider to be real and true, even for the purposes of establishing civic justice and a common understanding about why we're here and what, how we ought to live. And it seems to me the answer to this is to go back to our important resources in the classical philosophical tradition, and in Aquinas in particular, and I would, you know, maybe just articulate it in three simple words, existence, essence, and causality. The mind knows existence, that is to say, things that exist. We are in this room with many multi multiple existent human beings. And that's a judgment that precedes all debate and reasoning. It's something we know through a, a fundamental apperception of reality, that there are distinct beings, and that these beings are in some way distinct from each other, sometimes in natural kind, sometimes in property, often in their individual matter, uh, because you and I have a different body. And we can begin to elaborate a kind of um, account of reality in its, in its foundations and in its principles, because we're metaphysically realist as creatures. We're capable of making true judgments about different existent things, and then trying to find out what their natures are, and why a human being is different than another kind of animal. There are fundamental differences between the rational animal seeking happiness, which is the human being, and non-rational animals. And then between living things and non-living things, and trying to think out, as it were, you might say the taxonomy of the real. What are the different kinds of realities? What is it to be human? It's not simply a subjective question. It's not merely a scientific question. It's a profound philosophical question. And people like Aquinas have a lot to say about it. And if you say, if you study the, the the, the perennial wisdom of the Catholic Church regarding the human person and human nature, and you can present this coherently to our fellow secular human beings in a non-threatening way, you can win over a tremendous amount of people to the kind of common sense realism and insightful analytic um, perceptions that Aquinas provides us about the human nature, about what human beings are, and about causalities, and about what we're made of, what we are, about our spiritual aspects, the human soul, about the intellect and the free will, what human freedom is, what virtues are, what vices are, uh, about what we're for, about purposes, final causes, and ultimately about the things we depend upon to exist, each of us, and how the world itself is, a, as it were, an extension of realities that are interdependent that themselves point us towards a transcendent cause, that's to say God, as a sovereign giver of our being. I think that in the face of, in the, in the in the face of a crisis of realism, 
The Catholic Church's realistic philosophical intellectual patrimony is a tremendous, powerful um, resource, not only, as it were, to reassert the significance of the Catholic intellectual tradition, but to actually serve and help people intellectually. There's a kind of intellectual charity Pope Benedict talked about, or you might say a kind of a stewardship or a ministry of the... In- to the intellectual life of a culture that has lost confidence in its capacity to judge about the truth, about natures, about causes, about explanations. And that is, you might say, there the Catholic intellectual has the vocation to cultivate an intellectual culture of the transcendentals, being truth, goodness, beauty. When the Catholic Church speaks intelligently, philosophically, about being truth, goodness, and beauty, she points her fellow man toward the the riches of being, the riches of the creation, and she opens the human mind to contemplate and to admire and to have wonder, and she invites artists uh, into her project, naturally, because she alludes to the dignity of their vocation as seekers after beauty and as expressors of beauty. She invites ethicists and those who seek the good, and she she can elicit... some goodwill from people actually seeking the moral good or at least seeking happiness. Uh, And she can speak to people who are bewildered and are seeking and are trying to find the truth. To move on kind of organically from this to a second issue, I think that one of the deepest neuralgic tensions in, this is a second issue, a second cultural tension that's that's prevalent around us, and it's especially prevalent, I think, uh, in the United States, um, in the culture of advancing secularization. When you go onto an American campus and you ask a, a, a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, why, why are you, are you religious? No. Were you raised religious somewhat, but not, not, not that much? But, but I'm not now, and I'm certainly not going to be. Why? Well, I've studied the findings of modern science sufficiently to see that religion and science are incompatible. The, I would call it the myth of incompatibility and of the, the myth of fundamental uh, tension and opposition between um, Christian intellectual teaching and modern, uh, scientific vi- vi- the modern scientific vision of the world. You know, so the modern sciences give us a, currently a picture of the world wherein um, we know at least that there seems to be an origination from what's typically called conventionally the Big Bang, a small, dense... Uh, acclim- uh, a small, dense uh, set of particles of matter, and or, you know, kind of grouping of energy, as it were, that expands to become our universe, That from which we originate 14 billion years ago, roughly, and through a very long cosmic evolutionary process, to use the word evolution in a slightly metaphorical way, you get the conditions and circumstances in which life can emerge, and from five billion years ago, it seems, or four billion years ago, excuse me, you get uh, single-cell bacteria, in the, in the solar system we live on Earth, and then eventually through the evolutionary process, you get the emergence of uh, mammals and then higher mammals, as to say, with higher sensate functions. And at some point, maybe 50,000 years ago, maybe more, you have what seemed to be the emergence of rational animals who are capable of art, and eventually we see evidences of culture and language and religion and so forth. Okay. Is that vision of reality fundamentally incompatible with the Catholic faith? Well... Uh, in its most traditional um, articulation of its principles, the Catholic Church teaches things that are fully compatible with that vision of the world with some qualifications and nuances. 
So, I mean, here again, St. Thomas is one particular expression that's helpful. Um, there's a document from the Inter- International Theological Commission some years ago, I think in the early 2000s, on creation in the human person, which has a wonderful, uh, aver- uh, averts wonderfully to Aquinas on primary and secondary causality, which I'm about to talk about, precisely to treat this issue, and which is very much worth reading. Aquinas says, God is the primary cause of all things, but it, is, it gives greater dignity and glory to God to create things that are not merely passively moved by him or sheerly, you know, um, that are sheerly in effect, but that are also themselves true causes of other realities, so-called secondary causes. Realities in our world are called by Aquinas secondary causes because they're not absolutely primal. They're given being by the creator, but they're being sustained in being all through the history of the cosmos. Everything's being sustained in being always by the creator. And that history of beings being sustained by God is a history of true causes. And so the whole history of the cosmos can be an expression of secondary causality itself in a way uh, manifesting something of the wisdom of the primary cause. And so there's no fundamental reason that the modern physical story of modern physics and cosmology has to be in any way incompatible with a deep and rich account of being and of created being that Aquinas gives us. And it's also interesting that when Aquinas talks about whether living things could emerge from from non-living things, he does does consider that it's it might be possible for God to use, as it were, the virtues or the, the, the potentialities of non-living things to arrange them, as it were, providentially in such a way that living things could emerge from non-living things. Maybe there's a special creation of living things, or there could be a providential arrangement of non-living things from which living things emerge. Aquinas thinks that's entirely um, open question, philosophically speaking. When it comes to the human being, he thinks that there's a new creation in each human being of the spiritual soul, which must be true for philosophical reasons, not just not only theological reasons, because we, we have immaterial operations and activities of the intellect and will which can't really be reducible just the imagination, the sensate life, and to our material animality. So there is a special creation of the spiritual soul in each human being, but God can begin to create that at a time that he deems fit in a higher, evolved, more evolved hominid. And then more to the sort of point of the Bible, if you read Augustine, Basil the Great, also Aquinas, Bonaventure, on the six-day creation, they understand from the beginning, the church has always understood that there are important symbols. I mean, there are metaphors in that story that denote that what is being taught cannot merely be, as it were, uh, a 19th century empirical scientific description of reality of the kind that fundamentalism wants to make it. And fundamentalism is a 19th century, um, largely American movement to read the Bible in a kind of quasi-scientific way. The tradition of the Catholic Church is to say it's in a way a deep and rich metaphysical vision of the creation of man. And it has historical implications like a historical fall, historical creation of the human race, historical fall. But it's also um, a deeper, richer, symbolic, artistic vision in some ways of the beauty and order of the creation, of the dignity of man made in the image of God, of the dignity of grace that we are created in, of the gravity of uh, primal sin of our first ancestors. Um, and so it's, it's, it's weaving many things together under the symbolic arrangement of the days. I mean, the very fact that the sun is created on, a, what is it, the third or fourth day, shows you that they're not days in a, 
in a literal chronological way, as Augustine noted. So you're dealing with something that's highly symbolic and at the same time deeply, as it were, philosophical. And read in the Catholic tradition, it's beautiful. And there's even a person who's not religious, but who has any, a person who has the, the, the least literary and philosophical imagination, is going to find the traditional Catholic reading of Genesis extremely profound. And we have a tremendous opportunity then to explode the myth of oppositions, of, of incompatibility between science and religion by investing in our own philosophical tradition of the notion of creation and the immaterial soul, uh, by looking at the complexity of the human being that isn't just a, a random emergence of uh, 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 an advanced evolutionary hom- uh, ev- uh, an advanced hominid through evolutionary processes, you know, uh, b- motivated fundamentally by kind of chance events, but is in some way a deeply intelligible spiritual animal that can't be reduced just to its material aspects. So we can give a deeper, richer philosophical vision of the scientific world picture, and we can show in our own theological vision of man that we have this deep and rich um, theological vision of the human person made in the image of God, subject to the consequences of sin, but also invited to be redeemed by grace that comes from Genesis, as read in our tradition. And that's, that's, a, that's a challenge, but it's also an invitation and opportunity. Because what's going to happen if you don't have that synthesis of religion and science and their compatibility, helped by both philosophy and a kind of literary knowledge of the Bible, is what you're going to end up with is an People are not going to cease being religious, but they're going to become religious in increasingly irrational ways, and then you're going to have a scientism that is anti-religious, that alienates religious believers, and you're going to have a continual divide in culture where these facets of human experience and knowledge aren't wed together, and it's an incessant source of division. And really, we have the resources in a way that I think almost, well, I think really no one else does, to provide a kind of remedy to this profound cultural divide between science and religion. There are many other people outside the Catholic Church in the Jewish and, and, and Protestant traditions um, providing important um, resources. So I don't want to be misunderstood here. But I think in the Thomistic tradition and the larger philosophical tradition of the Church and her theology, we should be confident and we should um, realize we have a tremendous contribution to make. The last thing I want to mention uh, is the problem of... Um, I would put it this way, making ethics exciting (laughs) instead of foreboding. And here again, we're sort of living out uh, under the shadow still of, well, Kant and his alternative in modernity, who you might say is Freud, um, wherein you either have a morality of law and obligation that informs you of your duties so that you will use your freedom well so as to not encroach upon the autonomy of the other and that you live as a good citizen and your reason has to govern all your random, chaotic, anarchic anarchic impulses and uh, and, uh, instincts and desires and emotions versus a kind of... um, I don't want to say celebration, but an acknowledgement of instinctuality, which always mistrusts law if law acts against sexual instincts or against um, intuitions or uh, personal, you know, sort of what what the the sort of subjectivity of um, the human being who wants to be free from the constraints of culture to articulate their own morality. Now, you know, you get here a mixture of different voices in the in the postmodern world between Nietzsche, 
who in a certain way in Beyond Good and Evil wants to posit a primacy of the will to power. And I like how Heidegger interprets Nietzsche by talking about it as a will to art, the kind of freedom to create your own moral tableau of values. If you wed that a little bit with Freud and someone like Foucault tries to do so, you end up with a kind of vision of the modern human being who is always acting out against the arbitrary constraints of, of culture that are encoded in laws that are established prior to us that encroach upon our exploration of our personal liberties. And then any attempt to appeal to normative objective morality always seems like an imposition on the freedom of the self to seek, um, to, to pursue self-expression, to find meaning, to articulate a kind of a private worldview, a personal worldview, and to act out in any way one wants to, as long as one doesn't hurt anybody, although that ends up, it ends up that one, other people do get hurt in lots of ways. Um, okay, well, there are lots of ways one could talk about the current um, moral regime, and I think it, it, it must be said, every one of them would be too simplistic because one of the problems, as Alistair McIntyre rightly points out, that we face today in diagnosing our situation in terms of um, the problem of having a common moral language and framework is we don't even agree on the framework philosophically that we should use to diagnose the problem. But I do think and that McIntyre is right to say that the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition has tremendous resources here to offer us by changing the conversation about ethics. And I would underscore uh, a couple of ideas here. One is happiness, and another one is um, the pursuit of excellence. So Aquinas and Aristotle have a eudaimonistic vision of human freedom and ethics, which is grounded in the pursuit of happiness. And that means that in a certain way, before being a morality of freedom or choice or responsibility or even justice, theirs is a morality of desire and of love because we pursue the things we love to obtain them or to live with our friends who we delight in or love in order to have a life of stable happiness. So fundamentally for Aristotle and the Nicomachean ethics, we're motivated by the um, irreducible and ineradicable desire for happiness. And that love for the good and that desire for the possession of what is good, authentic goods, desire really in a certain way to love and to be loved interpersonally, is at the heart of the human quest for happiness. I think if we start the conversation around happiness as people like Alistair McIntyre and Servet Pinker's great Dominican moral theologian do, then we are really beginning from something that um, hooks the human mind or invites the human mind of our time uh, to be curious and to pay attention. When you talk to young people today about the search for happiness, they definitely pay attention. They don't even perceive it as a moral topic, even though it's the most classic approach to morality in the Catholic tradition. So the pursuit of happiness and then the acknowledgement that happiness is difficult and it requires a kind of internal um, judgment about what we ought to really love, what we ought to prioritize, how we ought to choose, what we ought to, um, uh, how we ought to treat other people, how we ought to build friendships, what we ought to pursue as most important in life and prioritize. And that it requires, in a way, in a way, a kind of work of the virtues. And there's a Dominican uh, theologian in Fribourg, Switzerland, Michael Sherwin, who says here, using a, a very in- interesting American analogy, that in, in a way, it's best to think of ethics in terms of an analogy to jazz. 
If you, if you watch a group of jazz musicians who are extremely gifted, who play with each other, they're all technical masterminds. They can do anything on the piano or the saxophone or whatnot as they're playing. But they're improvising with each other in a given key, and they're listening to each other. And as things change, they also alter. I mean, I'm in Ireland. I should also give the analogy to Irish folk music because they do the same thing. And then suddenly they'll change register and everybody follows the movement and readjusts. And the, so it's, you know, people say, well, jazz is spontaneous. There's a kind of improvisation. There's a kind of free form flowing movement. But to be able to do that, to have that spontaneity and innovation and life and vitality, it takes a tremendous amount of discipline wherein you've acquired the excellency of being able to play the instrument extremely well. So you have to have a kind of virtue of playing the musical instrument exceedingly well to have that spontaneity and freedom and innovation. And so morality actually is something more like that. In fact, in our ethical lives, we face all kinds of interesting dilemmas or quandaries or questions. So, you know, the difficult family member or the difficult family relationship, maybe to be more fair, that is you're going to be together at Christmas and you're only together maybe once or twice a year, but you know that that topic could come up and you're figuring out how to negotiate it. And every year it's a challenge. That's a sort of standard American example. But, the, you know, there takes a certain ethical intelligence to figure out how to negotiate a difficult situation like that. We have that with our colleagues at work. We have that in our professional circumstances of life. Parents have that with their children. Children have that with their parents as they get older. There's all kinds of ethical quandaries where actually to be ethical is, and to find happiness and to find issues toward happiness and interpersonal love is the work of in an ingenuity of the mind and a training of the soul that animates us, and we call that virtue. The virtue prudence and then the moral virtues of justice, fortitude, and temperance, the classical uh, cardinal virtues. And so the virtues are like, you, know, like, you might call it the, the dynamic engine of freedom that allows us to acquire stability in love. So just like the jazz musicians are changing as they go through the different uh, change, they're changing registers, they're changing keys, but they're maintaining a kind of uniformity. You change situations in the ethical life, but you maintain the primacy of love. To maintain the primacy of personal love in and through all things. That's human ethics. That's interesting. That's hard. And that's worth fighting for. And that's much better than arbitrary freedom to do whatever you want, to construct your own worldview. It's much more enticing. It's more noble. And we have that in our tradition. So we can articulate to that to people. And it does mean articulating that they're intrinsically evil um, acts. It is true that you know, killing a human being, born or unborn, is always wrong. It's true that that should be enshrined in law. It's true that there are acts of sexual misconduct that are never going to lead us to happiness. And it's true that there's ways of being unjust to other people or exploiting them that are grave, that are always going to issue in unhappiness for them, but ultimately also for us if we do this to another person. So there's a place for intrinsically evil actions. We need to talk about them, but we need to, we have to, because they're actually at the heart of the quest for happiness. To tell people, don't go down that road, that road will only lead you to tragedy and suffering. But at the same time, we couch that within a larger vision of the, of the kind of triumph of the heart the Catholic confidence that we were made to love and to be loved, and that the heart can triumph. But it can triumph only if we're also intelligent, and if we try to find wisdom, and we try to, in a way, practice some asceticism as a soul, so that we can live in that spontaneous freedom that love provides. Let me finish this talk just by, talking, by mentioning one last idea to return to the fundamental theme of the Catholic intellectual vocation. And that idea is that um, 
a most fundamental uh, contribution all Catholics can make that's deeply intellectual and vital to culture is to become, in some way, through faith, contemplatives. Uh, the mind ultimately is not made just to do, to realize, to be efficient, to conquer, uh, to be practical. Although the practical intellect is noble, both artistic and the kind of ethical practical intellect. The intellect is made first and foremost from the beginning to the end to contemplate the truth and ultimately the truth about God. And you say, well, that sounds like something for the most sophisticated philosopher. But actually in the faith, the least sophisticated person or the most sophisticated person is invited to contemplate God. The faith is first and foremost knowledge, judgment, contemplative judgment about who God is. And even though it's obscure at times, it invites us into a light, a luminous engagement with the mystery of God. And so it makes us in a way immediately people who are intellectually tending towards what's ultimate in the world, in reality. And in that sense, everyone who prays or cultivates a spiritual life of contemplation, mental prayer, intimacy with God in the faith, however simple, in fact, perhaps particularly in a simple way, speaks the primacy of contemplative knowledge. The famous story of the Kiridars, who had the man in his church who always stood and looked at the tabernacle, and he said to him, what are you doing? He said, I'm he said, what did, he said, I'm praying. He said, well, what are you praying about all the time? He, he said, I look at him and he looks at me. And in a way, you know, for the intellect to gaze on the Holy Trinity in the darkness of faith, uh, in the presence of the Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist, is the heart of the contemplative life of every culture. And to the extent that we sustain a life of mental prayer and contemplation in our culture, we sustain a primacy of the intellectual life. In our uh, time, the great temptation, which I think ultimately is a temptation of despair, is to instrumentalize the intellect primarily or even uniquely, ultimately, towards political ends. Why do I have an intellect? What is my reason for? Oh, to be the intellectual, to be the vanguard of whatever the newest political idea is. To practically realize uh, this or that technological achievement. If you look at what gets priority in university funding, it's almost certainly always scientific and technological knowledge. It's not, it's not evil, but you have to be careful to not create just a culture of... And then, of course, like look at our entertainments where we're you know, constantly looking at a screen. And so we need to find time to prioritize um, this fundamental contemplative gaze toward God. Of course, it can be enriched by philosophy and by theology, and it needs to be. But what we need to, as Catholics, bring to our culture through this primacy of contemplation is the idea that the intellect is made primarily to, to serve the truth, not to dominate others, not to realize the most perfect political plans, and that there's a circularity between knowledge and love. When you know God, you begin to love God more deeply. When you love God, you seek to know God more deeply. This is also true of human persons. When you contemplate another person, not seeking to dominate them, but to understand them, you begin to love them more. And when you love the, another person more, you begin to try to gaze at them intellectually and understand them. That circularity of love and intellect, which work in a virtuous circle of reinforcement and of deepening gaze on the mystery of being, the mystery of reality, that we make progress in understanding. That's a deep part of the Catholic intellectual uh, tradition. And we, all of us, through the vocation to know God in faith and love God and to know our neighbor in light of Christ and to love our neighbor, have an invitation inscribed in us by grace to be in a certain way a seed of the intellectual life of society.
So thank you so much for your, um, for your kind attention, and uh, I'll take some questions now um, for a little while. I promise to liberate you at a reasonable time. Um, there are no such thing as bad questions, and uh, I'll just call on you, and then just try to speak loud enough that people can hear you. Yes, sir. And so, a lot of really good stuff about theory there. About what? About just the theory of the patient capital and the role of that in deciding. In terms of practically realizing that, and are there enough sort of institutions, are there enough sort of methods and uh, and practices that are are making this kind of life achievable? So, when I was in Oxford, I would go and Google Scholar and certain debates, uh, Republican freedom, Nudge, nudge theory, be better on some than others, epistemology. Sometimes there just wouldn't be a kind of a Thomist take on it. Yeah. And the Thomists would be kind of in their own zone and they'd be talking to each other and kind of developing along those lines. Yeah. But sometimes they wouldn't actually be um, engaging with the where the debates are kind of currently at in the academy or whatever. Now I know what McIntyre says about different traditions, but sometimes you have to say that, okay, this whole tradition sucks. But if you look at, say, Cardinal Newman, even though he came from very much that Catholic, but he ended up in that Catholic tradition, um, and he was very much in that sort of sphere, he was constantly just responding. He was constantly saying, like, you know, Gladstone writes something about um, incompatibility of Catholicism and being a good British citizen, and Newman comes straight back at him. Could we be doing more to get this sort of stuff into some of these debates? Yeah. All right, let me say something, let me say three things briefly about that. I understand what you're saying. Um, I, I think I think that the, to to think within a tradition. So uh, let me just specifically treat the question of Thomism, since you brought it up. To think within a tradition in a disciplined way means on one on the one hand, you are trying to understand the principles and the kind of internal perception of reality, the internal logic of the perception of reality offered by that tradition. So there is a kind of internal discipline. So if you think about the accusation that Thomists live in an ivory tower or they don't talk to or engage with other people, that often is a a defect that can, because it's such a sophisticated tradition and it's hard to understand particularly delicate concepts or issues, Thomists can spend all the time talking to each other. There's a, there is a, in a, in a certain way, there is a, a subspecialization where we need that, in the sense that those people are preserving the knowledge of a tradition that's important. And then there's a, you might say, what I would call a dialectical engagement. What, by dialectical, I don't mean necessarily oppositional, but I mean a, an engagement where you try to understand other traditions. And I understand McIntyre to say that that actually is intrinsic to the vocation to preserve a tradition. So I, I think he thinks there's actually usually in any major intellectual tradition or religious tradition, there are probably deep elements of truth that we do need to engage with uh, and not dismiss. And, and I think that, that you have to have both. I mean, my, my whole idea is it's both the access to the principles, which is in a certain way in a formation, and then engagement, uh, you might say, with the, with the world around you. I, I've, tried to, I've tried to give a more systematic expression to this in a lecture I gave called Vaticanism, Thomism after Vatican II, which is online. Um, in terms of resources, I mean, I, you know, this is what I've devoted some time to trying to, Father Dominic Legg in Washington, D.C. has also devoted a lot of time to trying to make available. So, you know, for example, the Thomistic Institute, if you Google uh, Thomistic Institute uh, SoundCloud, you will find thousands of lectures on Thomism and the Catholic intellectual tradition more generally in dialogue with the contemporary issues of our time. I think that's essential to try to cultivate 
And I think there are a lot of people doing it. And I think there are people... Well, I think it's more of it happening than there was uh, 20 years ago. I think where... I think McIntyre's vision of a kind of engage, a, t- a principled Thomism that's also engaged Thomism. So not, it's just not necessarily syncretistic, but, but, ne- but nevertheless, it really in, in considering in, in depth the, the other viewpoints that are around us. Um, I think you can do the same thing with Augustinianism, and there are people doing that. And there's, you know, there are other options like more analytic theist types that are doing this also, just to name a few living traditions that are in our midst, so. I think Paul VI in Evangelization in the Modern World says this, when you're, when you're giving the lecture there, it came to me, is the divide between faith and culture is without doubt the drama of our time as in other times. And I just wrote down here, just to add that to the thing, um, is it because we're told the world can cut through like a soul. Is it that we do not practice it enough? Is it that we're not convinced of its power and its efficacy? Is it that we do not know the faith enough? And that we're not really interested in knowing it more? That, sir, is a good rhetorical question. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, of course, I, I won't contest the sense of your of your statement, but I would say about culture, um, it's so complicated. In the one sense, faith, true supernatural faith, in order to be really enrooted in us in a kind of incarnational way, needs to create a culture and inform a culture. And it's normal that Catholics have created such um, instruments of art and literature and law and education to express the faith in every aspect of life. I don't need to tell you about that in this co- country. And of course, I don't also need to tell you about the drama of dechristianization in a deeply Catholic culture as it undergoes a kind of, you know, um, pivotal questioning or even rejection in many respects of its fundamental kind of cultural information by faith. But the other side is, I think even in the heart of the most Catholic medieval culture of Europe, you always had what we might call the, the necessity of the reinvention of the terms of love. Because the great saints came in the eras of, you know, in a certain way, the 13th century, everything in France and Italy was Catholic. And in another sense, they were marauding and killing each other and ambitious and vicious and maybe not very illuminated. And people like Francis of Assisi, um, and Dominic and Aquinas and Bonaventure were lightning bolts sent from heaven to, enli- to, in- to re-engage the terms and conditions of love, as with Catherine of Siena. And so I think there's a way in which the dynamic of culture is also, for the faith, a dynamic of the reinvention in new eras. And uh, what can I say? I mean, God seems to try us in, in immense ways through that, but he also invites us to become protagonists. I mean, we, we would like to say... Thank you, God, for keeping me in a serene, placid, deeply Catholic culture. I can, you know, basically have my three cups of tea a day. I can go to Mass. Everybody around me is doing better than I am, and I'm doing okay, and it's all going to work out fine. And God typically doesn't allow that. He, uh, it's, it's just less tranquil than that. It's, it's much more vexed, and, uh, and it's anguished, and it's also inviting us to... Um, Reacquire stability at a much higher level. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, I, I just have a bit of a technical question, so it's not as in depth as those questions. Um, 
I suppose maybe um, if I could just invite you to speak on a particular issue, just it's germane to Thomism, but it's within sort of Catholic philosophical circles in general, and it's this. Um, when you talk about Catholic intellectualism, to what degree is the product of that intellectualism Catholic? And I'm thinking of the, the standoff between Jesus and Van Steenberg on the whole, this whole issue of Christian philosophy, whether or not you can have a Christian philosophy. It seems to me that there is an equivocation between the two of them on what a Christian philosophy could be. For Jesus, it was, you know, it, it was a philosophy done with the motivating factor of Christianity, but Van Steenberg took a Christian philosophy to be something that takes some sort of positive demonstrative proof from Christianity, and he says you just couldn't have that. Yeah. And I'm wondering with regard to you know, Catholic intellectualism, to what extent is that? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a, the famous controversy about whether really philosophy can be deemed Christian, precisely because it has its own principles and conclusions. To what extent is it affected by the Christian tradition? And there were, you know, this famous debate between Van Steenbergen on the one hand and Gilson on the other. I take the position in that of Jack Maritain, or at least a version of Maritain, I have my own views that, of how to see what Maritain's saying, I guess. But Maritain says that on a, you might say, on the level of specification or a formal identity, philosophy is a dimension, the philosophical reflection is a dimension of human nature. So all human beings are capable of it, and it, of course, has different achievements in different persons in different times and cultures, but there's something that's essentially human. And you might say it's part of the ecumenical patrimony of being human that we can, get, we can argue philosophically and arrive at significant truths. So in that sense, specifically speaking, it's not Christian. But in the concrete exercise, so it's on the one hand specification, on the other side, concrete exercise, Christianity makes a tremendous difference in many ways. And he talks about the objective... Uh, consideration of the revelation insofar as it invites the philosopher to consider what he might not otherwise have considered as deeply. A classic example is divine omnipotence. Um, Pre-Christian philosophers do think about God and God's attributes, but they don't think as deeply about divine omnipotence because they don't have as sort of a clear a concept of creation and what it means for God to give, create, give being to all things, sustain all things in being, and of miracles. And so thinking about the divine omnipotence, that's the requisite capacity or power in God for miracles. Um, but there's lots of other question, you know, issues like the spiritual soul. Aquinas' reflection on the spiritual soul is definitely philosophical, but it's also affected deeply by the revelation that we have a spiritual soul and the mystery of life after death. So there's that objective side, how the Christian tradition informs. And then there's the subjective side in us where grace can clear away a lot of the cobwebs either in our mind or in our heart, our will, or in our affectivity, where we will begin to pay attention to Christian ideas and therefore to philosophical ideas proximate to Christianity. So it might be completely legitimate to argue for this or that uh, challenging moral teaching of the Catholic Church philosophically, but people would be indisposed to it because of the shape of their lives or the shape of culture or the pressure of the culture. But the Catholic faith pushes you to try to have the courage and the clarity and the, and the, the sort of intellectual wisdom and love to try to argue for the philosophical truth of a given moral position. You know, think of, Elizabeth, back to my example of Elizabeth Anscombe, who was so very clear on so many uh, important issues. So the subjective and the objective exercise of the faith means that there's a, a Christian culture is going to effectuate a change in the way philosophy is conducted, even though it's specifically a human thing that's present in all cultures. Uh, I saw, uh, let me take the question in the back there. Yeah. Uh, just a slightly more practical question. Um, just to 
just wondering if in investment in the Catholic intellectual life is for everyone, or, or I don't know, if it's just one of them in a series of vocations and within the church, and also how to sort of evangelize Catholics, yeah. I think it, I think it is for everyone in some respects, and that's what I was talking about at the end about the invitation to contemplate God and serve God is already itself intellectual. I mean, look, I think actually the church historically has done a very good job, not in every instance, but often, of levels of acquisition. I mean, the whole idea behind Catholic schools traditionally was that you can initiate children to the philosophical and theological teachings of the church by um, uh, stages. And there's a, the problem is some of those interim instruments don't, aren't present or we've lost a sense of the specificity of Catholic, intellect, uh, Catholic education. And then there's also the fact that at the university level, often now Catholics live in a, when they're developing most in their youth intellectually, they have no direct ac- access to healthy intellectual resources from the Catholic tradition. And that divorce between, as it were, an intellectual professionalization is having a university on the one hand, and then their faith, it's creating a gulf. And that it can't be filled just by piety. As important as piety and love of God are, you also have to in- engage with the battle of the mind about the truth, or else you will have secularization, which will result or the weakened faith. And you, or at least you're just ceding the intellectual terrain to people who don't share a Christian vision of reality. So. Um, I do think that there are resources that exist. Um, there are many contemporary Thomists I find valuable, for example, to give to young people and to young professionals. But I think there need to be more networks of um, st- study and um, instruction. I mean, in some ways, that, of course, is the whole mission of the Dominican Order is to facilitate catechesis, um, doctrinal preaching, and kind of... Um, elucidate intellectual understanding. So I, there's, a, there's a hierarchy. Hierarchy is not always a bad word, but it's a hierarchy in which people can actually increase communion. If it's done right, it creates communion between people who have... A, and, you know, the thing is, the hierarchy of, of understanding of theology is not, the church has always insisted on that, the hierarchy of sanctity. They may coextend. I mean, Aquinas was both a high mystic and saint and a great, one of the greatest intellectuals. But... Mother Teresa was a, a very intelligent person who was not trained theologically and was an immense saint. And she illuminates. She doesn't just inspire. She illuminates. Her life is an illumination of the power of the charity of Christ. She lived in Christ. Christ lived in her. Uh, in her, Christ was among us in a saint, like in Catherine of Siena. And I see it in my poor faith. I think other people see it. So there's a way in which holiness is also a form of illumination. Um, you know, so I, I, don't, I don't think we should be scared to say that we're, there's going to be degrees of advancement in understanding, but there needs to also be a kind of concern about bringing people into sharing in the intellectual life of the church. And it's in our tradition to do that. Um, yes, sir? Just a question about uh, the church and Christianity and compassion. And we say the secular ethos that's in our culture, which, you know, the lines are fairly uh, deeply drawn in the states, as we can see on the, on the, on the abortion issue, and let's say with extreme feminism, yeah. and areas like that, you know, where we're, if, if we hold to traditional church teaching, uh, certainly on sexual matters or anything like that, uh, it is cast back upon us that we're, we lack compassion. Yeah, you know, and uh, that's 
And, uh, yeah, I just want to follow that and say that out there in the, where the battle is taking place at its, at its most extreme, is, is that not where you know, the, the Thomas Aquinas of today should be challenging the, the secular uh, ethos and you know, the, you know, that uh, abortion equates to com compassion? Yeah, well, I mean, I give that example. I agree with you on that. I gave that example specifically in the talk. I mean, I think we do need to challenge and 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 promote a culture of life, and uh, it's just a fundamental. It's a fundamental prerequisite of I think being a Catholic intellectual is to is to promote the culture of life and to speak clearly about the dignity of human life and the fact that it's inviolable in the womb. Um, and I, I think it's it is compassionate to do it. Now, there's a way when you're talking to someone who's, uh, you know, had an abortion that you should talk to them in a way that's humane and inviting them to to encounter God's mercy and think about the resources that exist for healing. Also for recognition of the truth, though. I mean, to, to divorce compassion from truth is tragic, and it will not issue in good, in, in good endings. I mean, all of us who I think are priests, I mean, I should say Washington, D.C. has a very high percentage compared to some other cities in the country. Uh, it's a very large gay population. And as a Catholic priest myself, I think it's true of all Catholic priests, but I mean, in, in, having worked 10 years in that city, I, I had many, many conversations with, with people who are same-sex oriented, who are active, some who are married, gay married, some who are not, some who are trying to be chaste, celibate, some who are you know, absolutely opposed to that idea. Um, and you know, the amount of complexity that exists there, of, of, of what human beings, um, well, more generally, all the ways human beings can suffer in the vexations of their sexuality, which is a common human problem. And then all the vexations that can exist in people who are, in a way, um, find themselves in an irremediable situation of same-sex attraction. The church has a tremendous uh, a tradition of tre treating people in this situation with compassion. And with, but part of compassion is clarity. If you compound a way of life that's, in a, that's causing a person repeated suffering or alienation from God, uh, and really, in a certain way, alienation from the church, you're not really being compassionate. We do have to have that confidence in God and in Christ and the church that there's a humane way to invite people, a gentle and charitable way to invite people into the encounter with the truth that also liberates them. Um, so I, I, I would say uh, there's a pastoral side to this that Catholic priests certainly face where being committed to the truth of the Catholic faith and her moral teachings in the public square also requires a, a, a particular kind of prudence about how to talk about these things in different personal settings with people who either open themselves up to you to talk about their, their struggles or with people who um, are contesting publicly the teaching of the church. And we do want to emphasize the primacy of charity, but not at the expense of the truth, precisely because it's the truth that sets us free and even though the church does require of us asceticism in the, in the realm of sexuality, that asceticism is in view of our own serenity and our deeper life with God and our happiness. And I do think that's one of the reasons that actually the celibate priesthood and the celibate religious life, they're not the only expression of this, but I think they're important expressions in the heart of contemporary culture to show that uh, sex is not a god and that the human being can live on a higher register with God in happiness and that in a certain sense, the practice of self-mastery is possible with us for, for all of us by grace, even with struggle, through confession and so forth, but with the grace of God, and that we can live a kind of um, 
we can live for more ultimate things. You know, so I, I do think that our concrete witness to asceticism for the sake of joy and happiness of life with God at the heart of the church is very important in our contemporary historical moment. I'll take this to be the last one and then I'll liberate all of you. Okay. Yes, sir. Um, this in a way touches on some questions that have come up already. Um, but the title of the talk tonight is The Need for Catholic Intellectuals Today. And it seems to me that in Ireland at least, while Catholic intellectuals may be doing a lot of good work within their own narrow sphere, that in terms of their contribution to the whole culture of our society and to the trends in society, that they are largely a dead loss. <laughs> that there is a rewriting of history in our country. We hear nothing from Catholic historians yeah. at a popular level. Mm -hmm. And the whole culture is being changed without any response from the intellectuals. And, um, and yet that culture then in turn modifies people's morality, it modifies people's character. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, we're, the whole of the West, in many ways, is passing through a phase of secularization. But what I would say is, in many respects, is passing through a phase of superficialization. Because the human being can't just live for consumption and pleasure and the aggregate goods delivered by the modern global economy and a soft ethics of tolerance. It's just too superficial it will be swept away. It may be swept away by a different religion than Christianity. It may be swept away by a new secular movement. It may be swept away by the return of the, Christian, of the church. It may be swept away by new nationalisms. But it ain't going to last because it's just not touching at what's the most profound in the human person. So in a way, we're, we're at a moment of cultural triumph, of a kind of um, secular liberal... Um, I don't want to say ideology. It may be not fair, but I mean an ethos. And I think on the other hand, that ethos is, is too uh, frail. It, it sustains a universal uh, kind of mock Catholicism, a universality of, of commerce and, and liberal tolerance and constitutionalism. But it doesn't have enough depth to really sustain human civilization, the patrimony of civilization, incessantly. So it will pass. And I think that right now, it's fair to have the aim to build an intellectual remnant, just in the sense of the Babylonian exile. They built a remnant, and then they came back and they refounded the country, and they created a second temple, and they articulated what the law was, and they codified the books of the truth of the divine revelation. And um, God sustained them through it. And, now, you know, there's going to be imperfections, but I think, I think you have to aim for a remnant and think that the remnant can be actually quite powerful on universal human civilization. And then there's the fact that we just never know what God's going to do. I mean, God has a funny way of making walls collapse and ideologies fall and your worst and most formidable adversaries seem to suddenly lose their voice. And the truth of the faith require, acquires anew its, its vitality. Um, it's true that sometimes we can be lack courage or ambition. We do have to be 
concerned about despair, and we do have to be concerned about uh, creating circular firing squads. I mean, there's different groups in the church. Uh, Thomists don't always agree with you know some other groups, and you know you don't. We don't have to. We don't have to practice tribal warfare among ourselves. Um, we do have to debate the truth, but we also have to maintain, as you're saying, this primacy of evangelization, intellectual evangelization. Um, but in the end, I mean, if Christ is with us, who's against us? Uh, each person has to, in a certain sense, accept to be misunderstood. It's part of the Christian um, it's part of the Christian vocation. Christ was misunderstood. Aquinas asked the question, should Christ have offended his auditors? And he says, well, he did, so there must be a reason. And he talks about the fact that, I mean, Christ loved us in an intensity of love that's immense, and he also offended us, and he offends us. But he did it to open their hearts to a truth that transcended them they weren't ready to receive, but they need to be moved to receive. And the, the problem is that you can say the truth as beautifully, as perfectly, um, fairly as possible, and you'll still offend. And it's just part of the gospel. And we have to have the courage not to seek to offend, but to seek to tell the truth with, with fairness and justice and love. And then trust Christ. Um, because 12 people followed him and it changed the world. And so all we need is 12. And we've got more than that here tonight. Thank you very much. <laughs>